please don't try the techniques discussed in this podcast at home. For more information, please contact your relevant health practitioner. Hi everyone and welcome to The Mind Behind It. My name is Huda. And I am Sahil. I'm Prash. I'm a doctor. I did my training in psychiatry, but from the time I started my psychiatry training, I guess the entire purpose and motive was to operate and work with psychedelics. The operative term I prefer to use is that I'm a psychedeliciatrist rather than simply a psychiatrist. And within that stream, most of the work I do at the moment is within the research focus, so looking into the therapeutic potential of and applications of psychedelics in psychotherapy. It's a nascent field, so it's still very much in the research stage at the moment, but we look towards that becoming or having sort of clinical application in the near future. The other stream of what I do is that about five years ago, I founded a cryptocurrency brokerage, which may be foreign to a lot of people. Not right now. Um, no, agreed. Not this right is now. interesting yeah. because uh, I think our, our paths have crossed for a reason. We delve into my inner sanctum and what I really am interested in is uh, I'm heavily invested in crypto right now because I've, Excellent. you know, it's it's the best way to tell the financial institutions to fuck off. That is, exa- <laughs> that is exactly why I got into it right at the outset. It was the ideology, not so much the... Um, sort of fiscal opportunity. But yeah, I got into it very much as a means of investing myself and then gradually turned that into a means of selling it to other people. And over the course of the last few years, that brokerage has expanded out now. Uh, We've got a team of about 35 people sitting out there for what we do. We are the largest retail crypto brokerage in the world. I can quite comfortably say that. And that is my other stream, both disruptive innovation with a challenge to just to sort of destabilize the status quo of the industries from the dissatisfaction of the industries from which they sport <laughs> like from an asian parent's perspective uh, <laughs> terrible you no, well you've you hit the jackpot in the sense it's a very misguided jackpot because hey my son's a doctor really what does he do oh he researches and do psychedelics <laughs> oh okay what's the other thing he does oh cryptocurrency why because he thinks banks are bullshit <laughs> yeah like you're going yeah, yeah, against yeah. the grain, but in the grain. Yeah, it's a very conflicted space. The number of times I have said to myself or my friends, oh, my poor mother, that line is almost, uh, <laughs> it's become a bit of a parable. What's, Pr- <laughs> what's Prash up to? It's difficult. Um, isn't he a doctor? It's That's difficult. all you leave it as, though. Yeah. That's all you leave it as. In the, in the early days of starting the brokerage, where back when there was still you know, a lot of doubt and suspicion around cryptocurrency, and the sort of sense was very much the, you know, all these years you went to medical school and now you're a money changer which technically I could not disagree with because as a brokerage, that's kind of what you are. You're a money changer. You know, she gave you the best title ever, the best hashtag for crypto, which is money changer. Yeah. If Bitcoin, if, if, if Satoshi hasn't used that, he's a fucking idiot. The, the Chetiaras used to have this thing called the Kittanki. Uh, so in South India, the Chetiaras were known as the money lenders or that's how, yeah, they, yeah. They, that's how they gained their fortune. And the, the Kittanki was where all the money changers were and they usually had a box in front of them. Looked a bit like a harmonium, but it was basically a, it didn't produce music, it produced money. And it was their ledger, it's where they held their money, it's where they wrote down their their records. And I I think that's what my, yeah, that was the sort of visual image that they probably had. I don't give them enough credit. My parents had become well-educated in cryptocurrency at the age of 75, which is quite impressive. I just realized we have a lot to talk about. So (laughs) we'll focus on, you know, your work in psychedelic therapy. So let's just start with, I was actually interested to know your first experience with underground psychedelic therapy. Very few people know about that. It's quite hush-hush. 
people are not allowed to really talk about it. But in the UK, it's becoming a big thing now. More and more people are sort of open to that kind of therapy. So what, how did you find your first experience with that? And where was it? My first experience with psychedelics per se was not in a therapeutic setting. My first experience with psychedelics was I hope in so. a rec- I hope so. Yeah, yeah, it was in a recreational setting, as a lot of people's are. How old were you? Late in the game, 27. And was it with a mate? I suppose you can sort of differentiate it between pure recreational settings. Sort of, Charlie went to a music festival and took acid in a crowd of 10,000 people he didn't know. And then there's Charlie, who's with a, with a group of close friends who decided to use psychedelics for intellectual exploration and went off to a cabin in the woods and proceeded to sort of, you know, fragment their minds and assemble it back together again. And then there's Charlie, who went to an underground therapist with a particular intention and to go through a guided therapy program. And my introduction was definitely the middle one, the second one. And it was... Yeah, it was it was profound. It made me question everything I knew about what I thought reality was. What did you think um, reality was? Pretty black and white. Uh, Even at the age of 27. I still believed, I guess that there was an idea of an objective reality. And even if I didn't necessarily think that, I think there's a difference between thinking that and actually living it. Yeah. You can you can understand as a very abstract concept the idea that objective reality doesn't exist and that all reality is purely subjective and it's only perception. This is a very Hindu concept we call Maya mm-hmm. or illusion. But then to truly embody that and live it is a completely different thing altogether. And I think to do that requires a certain level of experience within the realm of completely subjective reality to start to um, understand and embody it. And that is what this psychedelic journey took me towards. Now, if we want to talk about more underground therapy itself, I guess I won't talk in too much intricate detail because there are obviously legal ramifications to this. But know that, and I think it is relatively common knowledge, that underground therapy and underground therapists have existed forever and continue to do so today and certainly in the UK and certainly in Australia and particularly in the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales. There's a thriving community of underground therapists. Certainly in far north Queensland, there's a thriving community of underground therapists. That's probably the two main centres I can think of. And this has continued for many, many years and, and within the world of underground therapists, there's there are really good ones. There's a lot of knowledge there. There is also a lot of sort of neo shamanism, um, which can again be divided into the ones who are unintentionally sort of benevolently non-beneficial and can do benevolent harm. Having a feather in your hair and dreadlocks does not a shaman make. And having had five psychedelic trips in your life does not make you a shaman all of a sudden. And there are those that are well-intentioned but misguided individuals who can do harm accidentally. But there is also a subsection of malevolent harm intentionally misguided and that still exists within the underground therapy world it's hard to combat because it's a completely unregulated space and one of the principal motives between the clinical regulated psychedelic therapy movement is to move away from that risk and that's a very inherent risk and when you consider the power of these substances and the potential that they have to quote spider-man with great power comes great responsibility and the potential to do good is always balanced with the potential to do harm and so attempting to minimize that harm do no harm is the first principle 
people. That's the journey that I'm on. And it's a journey that a lot of my brethren within this industry are on. Let's go back to, you know, starting psychotherapy. Why were you so attracted to psychedelic therapy? So I've gone through my fair share of therapy. So just to give you some background, I actually OD'd on um, Molly, which is it's a recreational drug. And I'd never done drugs before that. I took it for three days straight. And the first two days were great. And the third day I had a trip and I was fine in a couple of hours. But the next day I had a drink and it happened again. And it kept on happening to me for months. And I obviously became really anxious, lost a lot of weight. Like my life just came to a standstill. And then obviously I took treatment, which was like getting on medication and CBT, which so obviously medication kind of became the go-to route, which is what most of the people want to study in this field. But obviously you had an interest in psychedelics specifically. Why was that? Well, I mean, I never wanted to be a psychiatrist. At no point did I really want to be a psychiatrist. I finished medical school and I was heading down the path of being a surgical trainee. And then I discovered psychedelics and spent quite a few months deep diving, both experientially as well as sort of theoretically. And all of a sudden, the body just wasn't that interesting anymore. And the mind gained this immaculate significance and interest. And psychiatry gave me, without sounding like Dr. Evil here, unfettered access to the human mind and the capacity to study the mind on a day-to-day basis. But in particular, it was the possibility of being able to understand how psychedelics work with the mind and work with psychedelics. And this was 2012. And back then, psychedelic therapy was very much in its infancy. I got into psychiatry to work in psychedelics. It wasn't the, the other way around of you know, being in psychiatry and then discovering the potential for psychedelics in psychiatry and therefore choosing to specialize in that. Probably in my third year of psychiatry training that I came out of the psychedelic closet, so to speak, and started speaking openly about this. And it was it was terrifying at the time, sort of exposing yourselves to your colleagues. The, the first three or four years of that was a, a lot of stigma and criticism. And I've been speaking at conferences a couple of times a year and invariably getting slammed, particularly at medical conferences. And it's usually stigmatized views that are aren't necessarily based in evidence, but you can't necessarily blame people when, they, when they've when they been indoctrinated over years. And you just get really good at countering these stigmatized accusations with facts and evidence. So what are the, what are the main ones that they throw at you? Oh, man. Oh, they're, they're, I mean, that it's dangerous, firstly. You know, how can you be recommending this when it's dangerous? Um, yeah, because medications are not dangerous at all. I mean, please keep taking them. Not a problem. <laughs> Point one, mm-hmm. point one, uh, nothing is without side effects, but also psychedelics have no overdose potential or addiction potential. I thought they did. You find me one person who has physiologically overdosed on mushrooms. It's always the chemicals, the hard chemical drugs that people tend to OD on. Yeah. It's never, yeah, mushrooms. I, I think people have a scary yeah. trip on it, but they never... The psychological impacts, but there are countless anecdotal tales of people taking, you know, what would be a, a thousand times a dose of what would be a usual recreational dose of acid, for example. And yeah, they maybe never be the same again psychologically because it's hard when you, your fragment of reality has been broken down to that extent to come back again. But physiologically, fine. Now you take a thousand times a dose of anything else. You try you know, potatoes and I'd say whoa, whoa, whoa. potatoes is really sensitive. Because I fucking love potatoes. So be really careful how you tread because <laughs> potatoes is life. I shall not. I shall, do, I shall tread carefully. <laughs> Going back to that, um, what I really struggle with is, you know, a lot of times people with psychedelic experiences are very abstract. And I understand because they always have, they always have a very abstract definition. There's a word for it. Ineffability. I love that word ineffable 
You're going to use it everywhere yeah. now. I am. Inevitability. The incapacity to define in words. And that kind of frustrates me sometimes because I, I'm like, I want to try this thing, but I'm, I'm too scared, right? Because I did it once and it completely changed my life. And of mm-hmm. course, I'm really, really scared to do anything else because I'm so scared mm-hmm. of the trip. But if you were suggesting someone to, you know, Suggest. to do psychedelic therapy, how would you prepare them for that? What are some of the things you tell them before their first session? That's probably a far longer discussion than we can have in an hour. I mean, a general psychedelic therapy session, we might talk about this a bit later. The preparation assessment session is about four sessions. That's about four hours of preparation for it. And even then, it's the tip of the iceberg, really. You mm-hmm. can never really prepare someone for exactly. what a psychedelic experience is going to be. It is a phenomenological experience. And we are limited by this very blunt tool that we call language to try and describe things. And when you are talking about experiences and perceptions that are so outside your conceptions of normal reality that you don't even have words for it yet, how can you possibly communicate that? Mm. There are a few brief concepts that you can kind of allude to. For example, people often talk about ego disillusion, the disillusion of the ego, the dissolving of the ego. Which is quite um, common. That's the first thing you hear. It is. Yeah. You talk about psychedelics. And that's a very common construct. It sounds scary, you know, this idea of your, your ego completely dissolving. Also kind of important. It's essential to, it is absolutely essential to how psychedelics, you know, sort of exert their positive effect. How do you define um, ego, Prash? Like you, how do you define ego? So, yeah, we'll leave aside the, the sort of Freudian definitions of id, ego, superego. I think of the ego as being the interface that acts between the self and the outside world. And in a lot of cases, is something that we utilize to form a shield against our fragile inner selves. Our true selves are, are fragile. They're all soft, mushy insides. And the ego is essential so that we're not always constantly crumbling in abject, abject distress. And so and at one end, you have narcissism, where the ego is so strongly scaffolded and that shield is so strong that you can never quite penetrate to the inside and then at the other end you have complete abject anxiety when there's no shield and you're just this flubber really and so the ego does act as the interface but by virtue of being the shield it does protect against vulnerability but also prevents vulnerability i was literally just about to ask about vulnerability if you consider that a lot of therapy is trying to understand the self better and trying to understand your own internal deficits and your own scars and where all that comes from the ego in that setting, if anything, it is a detriment because it's constantly trying to prevent you from being able to access those soft, mushy insides. So the idea of ego disillusion, which strips away those ego defenses, allowing you to actually peer in and discover the sort of your dungeons and the demons that crawl within the basements and the cellars of your psyche, becomes an incredibly valuable experience. So ego disillusion is one. Another that's worth considering and sort of bringing up is that anything that is experienced in that moment, in the psychedelic trip, is of your own creation. The mushroom has no thought content. The thought content is entirely within you. The demons you see, the insecurities you feel, the paranoia that you go through, these are the negative experiences, but also the joy that you feel, the beauty that you experience. All these things, all the hallucinations, anything you see which has content is your own creation. It is of your own creation. At least when we think about the negative side of things, and people often have a bad trip. I like not to use the word bad trip, but a challenging trip. It's not just bad is a value-loaded term. A challenging trip 
trip is often where all the learning happens. Because in a challenging trip, if you consider that the thought content is all within you, then you recognize that that stuff's been in you the whole time. It's the kind of psychological stuff that you know, sort of rears its head on an idle Tuesday, blindsides you, and then you call that an anxiety, or you call that a panic attack, or you call that mood swings, or you call that various different things. But that content is within you, but it's subconscious, and you're not consciously aware of what it is. And psychedelics instead, and that zone of having your ego stripped away, give you an opportunity to go down there, and you've got a castle. Imagine your psyche as a castle, and there's rising damp. You've got two options. One which is like, batter down the hatches, I don't want to hear about it. Or here's an opportunity to actually go down there, discover where the damp's rising from, and over time, work at fixing the leak. My psyche yeah, is okay. like Taj Mahal. It's it's beautiful, it's big, but, <laughs> but under it, there are two dead bodies of two lovers. <laughs> <laughs> so it essentially brings everything to the surface, which pretty is, much. Which is what I get therapy wants you to do, right? It's to but it is access point. the vulnerable side of you. Yeah. Which is, Absolutely. And that's Absolutely. almost kind of in line with Jung psychology theories as well, isn't it? It's very in line with a lot of Jungian psychology and it's definitely in line with a lot of oriental mysticism, as they would say. Um, in fact, talking to my parents about psychedelics, which, you know, that is a whole other podcast in itself. <laughs> yeah, what was that, that first podcast? That should seriously... Dialogues with colour. Dialogues with colour. But it, it was actually a lot easier than I thought it would have been because approaching it philosophically my parents are Hindu as I am and Hindu philosophy and psychedelic philosophy are actually very much one and the same the concepts are very very alike as is as is a lot of Buddhist philosophy as well and we were often speaking very similar language just different dialects yeah and I guess when, when it comes to you know that idea of trying to access that vulnerable side of you is the ego a result of human evolution it was made to protect us from something uh, like if we date it back to like centuries and centuries ago were we as human beings initially when we came on this earth well were we like these vulnerable beings and over time did, did this ego come about or you think it was always there this is again another podcast on psychodynamic theory and there are various different theories about the ego and one explanation that i can give you is if you existed alone on a desert island there would be very little reason for an ego. Yeah. Yes. But we but we live in society and we live with other people. Consider this the idea that there is a true self and there is a false self. And the false self is the projection that you put forward to the rest of the world and to society. And the true self is who you truly are. And they are never the same. And the truly enlightened, perhaps, is the one who has managed to narrow that discrepancy between the true self and the false self. Uh, I would even go so far as to suggest that sort of and speak to some of my patients that you know one way towards a path to contentment is to narrow the discrepancy between the true self and the false self because then you are truly comfortable with who you are but considering that by virtue of living in society we can never quite be that then there needs to be this buffer zone and the, the operator the modulator of that buffer zone becomes the ego mm -hmm. and it is an it is a necessary construct if you are looking to survive in society it's essential but it can be a problem depending on the situation you are the context you are and whether it is overinflated it's a dynamic equation it can change from time to time depending on where you are who you're with your ego isn't a problem with your friends but maybe a problem with your parent or the other yeah. way around yeah. so we were speaking to someone a while back who struggled and still you know we all struggle with it i guess um some form of mental health illness but his was mostly regarding depression and the the comment that he made which i think really stood out and it's something i've always kind of believed but he kind of articulated it the best you know when we're experiencing depression and anxieties and all that sort of stuff we often 
are selfish because we're in fight or flight. So for us, this is just the only way we're trying to survive. And the best way that he found to combat is by being more compassionate. And I feel like when you say the importance of ego dissolving, a part of that is that it will open us up to vulnerability and compassion. Yeah. That was fucking profound. <laughs> I don't think it I was just mostly I made the connection to that because yeah. when we talk about depression as such and we talk about anxiety and all that sort of stuff, a lot of it, unfortunately, it's like a double-edged sword. You know, we are trying to survive. However, we're also becoming more selfish, which is then closing us off to people around us, which is then exacerbating our depression. Maybe not as much in acute depression, but that is probably something that you will see as a trend through anyone who has suffered with chronic depression, because over time you start to develop that hardened shell as a means of self-protection. Yeah, because I think we all kind of are depressed. Like we all have some form of depression that comes out. Don't talk to me. No, I don't want that. I don't want that talking up. No, I think that I think once you experience it, that's kind of it, right? And the rest of your life, you kind of work to deal with it and how you're going to manage it better, right? And that's kind of key because it's like the only way, like we all experience it, you know, we're humans and we live in a society where everybody experiences it. The only difference between someone who's happier and not is the way they've handled it or managed it, their perspective. We all experience distress. Yeah. We all experience distress and to varying degrees. But to make that transition to from distress to depressed, yeah. and it's in sort of a semi-arbitrary line in the sand, but usually you consider something that's far more pervasive, far more intractable, and that doesn't fluctuate over time. And, and it's, yeah, it's often that stuck in one gear and you yeah. can just yes. not extricate yourself from that. But your point earlier about the depressive position, again, this is it's a common sort of paradigm or difference in the way people think about psychology, but there is an entire school which stems from the idea that we come from a predominantly depressive position and we're constantly just seeking those sparks that lift us up from it. And yeah, it's a slightly pessimistic view. William Burroughs, if you've ever heard of him, oh, yeah. who said perhaps all pleasure is merely relief. I, I do think there's some truth to that because I've, I've kind of realized in the last year, I think being in lockdown, and you know just i think it was a time of soul searching for a lot of people and some people just watch porn with different whatever <laughs> i i was soul searching because i'm a resourceful human being and i kind of realized that my depression tended to be worst when i had fluctuations in my mood and i realized that the the whole idea was try to get away from those fluctuations and make them smaller and smaller and not being too happy or not being too sad was actually the best neutral position i could get to and I didn't want any piece of news to make me too happy or too sad because both of them have disadvantages because once you're too happy, then everything else feels shit compared to that. It certainly isn't a universal position. There are certainly a lot of people who prefer that. And this is the difficulty with psychiatry in that there is never a one-size-fits-all approach and sort of tailoring that to the individual and the way their sort of psyche has formed up until that point and allowing them to understand what works for them better. One of the key things that my analyst has told me, <laughs> the first thing he said to me is, this is called psychoanalysis. It's not called psycho-fixing. We ain't here to fix shit. It's not about fixing anything. It's about analysis. It's about allowing you to understand what is subconsciously affecting you all the time and allow you to bring that out into the conscious so that once you understand what you're working with, then your conscious mind and your cognitive capacity can put in compensatory strategies. You can tailor your life such that it works 
towards your psyche and the way it is. Because a lot of people come into this at 30 or 35 or at 45. And by that point, there's a lot that has already been built up, which is going to take a lot of untraining if you're thinking of fixing it, right? And so a lot of the times it's about just gaining greater understanding. Self-knowledge is the means of liberation. And this is what psychedelics aim to do in a far more truncated, quite intense manner. You, you made a fantastic point there, which was we analyzing it and not fixing it because after my drug trip for a long time. So I had what's called uh, depersonalization and derealization, a lot of it. And the whole time my thought was, this is never going to end. This is never going to end. This is never going to end. And eventually what happened over years and years is that I forgot about it and it just became life. So you saying that it's actually quite interesting because there is nothing to fix. Yeah, you can analyze it. But as soon as you say you want to fix something, which is what the human mind tends to do. There's an end point that you have to yes. get to. Yep. And if you don't get it, you get depressed. Because every time you're like, I haven't got it, I haven't got it, yeah. I'm not there, I'm not there. When we are in that state, a lot of the time, it's all about managing how to deal with it, really. Yeah. And I, I think going back to uh, psychedelics, I, I want to ask you, even if it's a bad trip, I don't think anyone's ever depressed during the trip. Look, bad trips can be terrifying. Yeah. Let's call them challenging trips because that's still the term that I think is far more appropriate. Challenging trips can be absolutely terrifying. But there was a really interesting study, Roland Griffiths, I think it was 2008. 17 or 18, which looked at, I can't remember the sample size now, but it was pretty large and revealed that 60% of people surveyed stated that they had experienced a challenging trip as part of their psychedelic experiences and that that challenging trip was rated in you know the top three most difficult moments of their lives. But I think getting, I should have these numbers, but like 85% of them said they absolutely would do it again. Even um, though it was challenging? Absolutely. And anecdotally, that that is... <laughs> Uh, 100% the um, in fact I would say I would say the 15% who didn't say that who didn't say that they would do it again or didn't actually have a positive outcome from it the issue isn't with the psychedelic experience the issue was with the integration which is a whole other concept which we probably need to talk about so in every psychedelic therapy session the the general route that it follows is let's say three to four sessions of preparation and assessment and then you actually have the psychedelic therapy session, which can last anywhere from six to 10 hours, depending, usually with two That's therapists. like a school day. <laughs> yeah, but a lot more interesting. Yeah, it's way more interesting. I've had yeah. good school days. <laughs> so it's anywhere from six to 10 hours with two therapists. And then after that, you have what we call integration. So once a week, an hour with usually one of the therapists was there in the session almost like once a week psychotherapy for six weeks or 10 weeks. And that process of integration is a means of taking all of the learning that came from the psychedelic experience, reformulating that into a structure and a form that you can then incorporate into your life going forward. Any experience in the present, any experience in the present is left behind in the past unless you make an active effort to integrate it into your future. That is any experience. And that is only even more relevant when you have an experience that is that profound and that impactful, that there's no point having all of this wonderment if you don't actually yeah. make active efforts like apply um, it. to integrate that and apply it and learn from it. And I would say of that 15% who had the challenging experience and you know, didn't necessarily gain beneficial outcome from it, I would hazard a guess that a large part of that problem was a lack of integration or effective integration. Yeah. Because... 
the challenging experiences are really where the magic happens. Yes, 100%. And uh, it would be worth discussing with you, obviously, we, we don't want patient privacy thing, but what were some of the uh, wonderments that came out from some of your patients or, you know, people that you that, that underwent or even for you, what were some of the, yeah, the knowings that they got out of these experiences? There isn't patients that we are sort of treating now clinically. Yeah. Yeah, um, so, yeah. And in Australia, at least we're gearing up for, and there'll be a couple of trials in the year to come. But the qualitative studies from around the world in terms of the learnings that people have taken away from this, one of the key ones is a greater understanding of reality and the purely subjective nature of it. The issues with we're sitting with a very fixed idea of what reality is and therefore one's view of the world. That's one. Mm -hmm. A greater sense of purpose and a greater sense of meaning of, again, one of those very common threads that people come out of the experiences with. A greater sense of connectedness to other humans oh, yeah. and to nature and the world around them is another very, very common thread. I often describe that there is a moment in every, maybe not in every, but in a lot of psychedelic experiences. <laughs> On one hand, you become so aware of the enormity of everything around you, particularly if you're out in nature, you know, looking up to a, to a tree and recognizing the enormity of this thing that has existed for millennia and your absolute insignificance in comparison with all this wonderment around you. But at the same time, recognizing just how your carbon atoms fit into the carbon atoms of the rest of this ecosystem and how you are an integral thread in this greater fabric of what is reality. And that point of recognizing your absolute insignificance and your absolute significance at the same point, the technical term is a mindfuck. <laughs> um, Duality. That, yeah. That recognition is... Yeah, it can be it can be quite vital. And depending on which position you're coming from, for those who have who have been living their lives completely convinced of their their absolute significance, um, yeah. that can be a really sobering reality. Oh yeah. yes, really sobering reality. But while still not necessarily breaking them down to an extent, because they're still aware of their significance. And conversely, if you're coming from that other position, it would probably um, humble those. Yeah, and so as a as a means of equalizing those who are sitting on either end of that by spectrum yeah which now thinking about it and thinking about depression Uhura said this in the beginning it's you're so in your head and inside of you like with an experience like that for the first time you can actually sit outside and it, it's relief it's actually quite relieving because you're like oh my god I don't have to sit in that brain for a bit and you can look yeah. at other things around you and kind of like appreciate that but when you're depressed or you have a lot of negative thoughts it's all in your head and when you were mentioning you know just looking at the tree and mentioning the significance of something that stood for millennia your brain has those really really deep connected thoughts you know you haven't experienced them in a while or well you don't give them much much, much thought or yeah. weight yeah, yeah exactly as compared to like oh i gotta do laundry i gotta go to work and <laughs> The banal, I guess, uh, I don't know if it leads to people being existential because everything else kind of becomes a bit banal. Absolutely, it does. Yeah, and, and that absolutely it does. Yeah. And that can again be a good thing and a bad thing, like depending on the person. But yeah, it, it gives you that relief where you can just sit outside of yourself and look at both sides, the duality of life and go, okay, so there is no clear answer here. So what am I looking for? Yeah, and to look at yourself from the outside and, and see yourself or what it, what you what you truly are and what it all really is. There's this idea of 
you can't read the label from inside the jar. Yeah, and, that's true. And to be able to remove yourself, and it's so much of we've mentioned reality and and the the, the fallacy that it is. But if so much of reality is perception, or all reality in my mind is perception, yeah. and so much of perception is perspective, then anything that allows you to shift that perspective to view things from a completely different angle. And this is where Hindu philosophy, psychedelic philosophy, quantum physics all meet at yeah. this at this singular juncture because that's that's very much you know one of the basic premises of of quantum physics which is perspective. Yeah, and yeah. I yeah. always say that, and you're like, eh, you always say that. What quantum physics? You've no, never I mentioned say it. perspective all the time. <laughs> You've never mentioned quantum physics. I'm not physics. really good at quantum physics. <laughs> well, not a lot of people are because it's still, again, it's a very nascent. So I, um, because I took physics in um, high school, like we kind of had this one segment on quantum physics, which was quite small. But I think there was a reason it was so small because it's it's very hard to grasp. and It's the humanities as much as it is a science. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's 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 kind of the most the, the closest we will ever get to understanding. You know, a lot of people now tend to focus on, you know, having these experiences so they can alter their consciousness and alter their reality and aim for this other reality that they can go into. But funnily enough, um, I think psychedelic experiences probably help you with your current reality and make you go, oh, this is not too bad. This is not the worst uh, thing in the world. No, and you can, the, the problem with looking is that you can, you can keep looking. You can keep looking and looking and looking. And by definition, the rabbit hole has no end. Yeah. yeah. Um, how, how long do you want to keep looking? And, and th this again is why and I, I think I mentioned briefly earlier in terms of the risks and the stigmatization of the field, this idea that psychedelics have zero addiction potential. Zero. You find me one person again who's physiologically addicted to psychedelics, and I'll stop talking about the subject forever. Just one way to end a career, I suppose. <laughs> but, uh, and from a physiological standpoint, and there's there's plenty of research behind this that that is true. But from a psychological standpoint, I've often had this sort of question asked of me, like, well, "But if it's such an amazing place to be in, don't you want to just keep going back there? Don't people just want to be back there all the time?" And I say, "Actually, no, because it's it's tiring." It's incredibly tiring. Well, six yeah. to ten hours is... And doing mental work, it's a lot. Six to ten hours of cracking your brain open, yeah. that's that's tiring. And yeah, usually after that, there's, there's some time needed to process. And this idea that people want to just keep living in that space is... But they're talking about addiction as if it's... Like, there's opioids that people take as an addiction. Mm. So it's like, well, where, you know, where... To, if well, you're going to talk about addiction, then... Well, I, I think the reason is actually quite clear why, you know, people are so against having psychedelic therapy. It's, it's because the opioid industry is so fucking big. Companies like Pfizer or like... Like these companies have lawsuits every year that they have to fix, right? They've got a certain amount of money dedicated to lawsuits, like 100, yeah. 200 million. If you started more of something else, like psychedelics, their industries are going to be ruined. So they want you to be taking that shit. Look, the answer is complex and multifaceted. Don't be diplomatic. No, it, abs it absolutely is. And um, I, I would say that that's definitely one piece of the puzzle. But it's definitely not that which started the problem. It's certainly perpetuating it. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, I don't think that it's sort of conspiratorial to suggest that Big Pharma that produces antidepressants has a vested interest in sort of in maintaining the status quo. Yes. I, I truly believe in that, of course. 
but that didn't necessarily start the problem per se. Yeah. The problem, if you really want the answer to where the problem started, psychedelics have been utilized in religious sacraments for probably as long as there has been religious sacrament. There's a phenomenal book called The Infinity Key, written by a guy called Brian Murarescu, uh, tracking the use of psychedelics throughout world religions over the last you know, few, thousand, few thousand years, which is very interesting. But the modern revo- psychedelic revolution started with Albert Hoffman in 1943. Do you know the story about acid and the discovery no, of acid? No. So on the 16th of April, 1943, Albert Hoffman, who was a scientist working for Sandoz Laboratories in Basel, Switzerland, he was experimenting with uh, an agotamine der- derivative that they were, they were trying to make a respiratory stimulant. It wasn't really doing what they thought it would do. And he pulled it out again to try and experiment with it. The, the story goes he may have dripped some on his fingers. It's still unclear. But whatever happened, he went home and things weren't just quite the same again. So three days later, on the 19th of April, 1943, he ingested 200 micrograms, micrograms of this substance, lysergic acid 25 diethylamide, LSD 25. And then he got on his bicycle and rode home or tried to ride home. (laughs) And that was the world's first intentional acid trip. And the 19th of April, only recently, is still celebrated around the world as Bicycle Day. More people take acid on the 19th of April than on any other day of the year. Look it up. Bicycle That's day like 420, but for acid. <laughs> yeah, it's the day before. Oh, it's yeah. 419. Yeah, it's 419. You but think- it has far more actual historical precedence. But that's, that kick-started the modern psychedelic revolution. And what, again, you bring up Big Pharma, what Sandoz Laboratories did then was, well, they had this thing, they're like, okay, so it does all this, this stuff. How do we make money off And for about a decade, Sanders would basically send out vials of liquid LSD to any researcher that asked for it. It was called Dialysate because they were desperate to find some pharmaceutical clinical application for it. They're like, please research this, find us something that it can do that we can then turn this into a medicine. And so between 1943 to about 1970, that research was rife. The US government themselves sponsored about 120 trials into psychedelic research. And then in 1970, Richard Nixon signed during the, the Vietnam War. Yep. And that was the problem because what happened in 1969 was probably the zenith of the hippie counterculture movement, right? Which was pro-love, anti-war. And the uh. one, thing, one thing you could not have at that point it was anti-Vietnam War. It was already such a fragile situation. You couldn't make thinking illegal, but you could definitely make illegal anything that made people think more than what it is at the moment. So it's almost Um, like a form of control, really. Absolutely, it was form of control. And we've since seen an apology from Harry Ainslinger and the the US DEA at the time, talking about exactly how this was very much a political move. Yeah, well, the Watergate incident, which which is pretty... But uh, that's actually quite what Bharat said, a friend of ours who's a, a psychiatrist as well. And he said, it's like, you have to know about the story about psychedelics and where it all started. They actually had tons of research in the 1960s and just yeah, before Vietnam War. And then people realized that, you know, all these uh, hippies were using it and questioning. And yeah. they were like, holy shit, this is not what this was for. 
Well, you, you don't. Yeah, you, you don't often find hippies being assholes, really. No, it, like a lot of the hippies are nice people. Yeah, <laughs> and I think it scares us. Yeah, it scares us, and I think people become really jealous and go, oh, "That's a great way of living." Questioning power structures are one of the most dangerous things you can do. Yeah, I think sometimes, like the reason we get so busy with our lives is so that we can't question. Like they're purposely made like this so that, like, why do you need to do so much laundry? I don't get it. Like, why do you need to do iron clothes and like <laughs> just shit? about we, laundry all day yeah because it's so banal and like just we just spend so much doing doing banal things or figuring out how to put fitted sheets fuck fitted sheets why do we need sheets like all these really i'd say humans have a remarkable ability to take something very simple and complicate the absolute <laughs> bejesus out of it and i will use you know, the psychedelic industry as one example of this there was a great quote from the Johns Hopkins where they were running one of the psychedelic trials. And psychedelic trials are incredibly expensive. And one of the reasons for that is that there's huge security protocols that are necessary yeah. just, just to store these things. So the psilocybin is stored in a, in a safe, which is in a double lock room, which is at the end of a corridor, which has got a video cameras all around it, which is that corridor, you need a swipe card to enter and it's in a building, which is a security guard on the outside. And there's all of this. Imagine the cost that goes into all of this, yeah. the permits and the uh, import restriction licenses. And But you walk out of that building at Johns Hopkins and you sort of turn left and you walk about 200 meters, you get the edge of the campus and there's state forests and about 100 meters in, the stuff's growing in the ground. Ah. Wow. And along with that, Compass, Compass Pathways is probably the biggest psychedelic company around. They're producing sort of huge GMP molecules of psilocybin and they're running clinical trials on this. And they just reached a $1 billion valuation, or a bit more than that, actually. They're probably up to about a $1.5 billion valuation. And yes, they're doing a lot of good work in that they're synthesizing psilocybin. So it's a control form so that we can use it for clinical trials. Then they applied for the patent for the synthesized psilocybin. So you have a control form that we can use in, in clinical trials so we can empirically analyze the data and prove how it works. All of this amounts to a $1 billion valuation for a mushroom, which grows in the ground for free. Yes, I'm simplifying things. Yes, I'm taking away from you know all the protocols and all of the work done around it. But this, I think it's a perfect analogy for the way we have this simple thing, then we build complex structures around it, then we build complex rules to govern those complex structures, then we bring yeah. in government and authorities to enforce those rules, then we bring in punishments as a retribution for when you don't follow those rules, and then you need further structures, and it just goes and goes and goes and goes, and then we have something we can call society. Happy day. Nice. That's a great way solid, of summing up society. <laughs> that's a great way of summing up society if you well you're not and in the end result is that you have to do laundry. Yeah. yeah that, well thank after you. all that you'd rather just fucking do laundry. No fuck no I still I still <laughs> wouldn't want to do fucking uh, So I know that you talk about mushrooms as the psychedelic drug. What about what are your thoughts on marijuana? Because I know there's a big thing about marijuana at the moment. There's kind of the sativa, indica and rodrica, the three main strains. The word marijuana was actually another result of the drug law movement back in the day. So Harry Ainslinger and his and his team were desperately on a mission to stigmatize cannabis. And one way to do that was to associate it with 
immigrants, particularly the Dutch oh, Mexicans yeah, coming you're across right. the border. Yeah, and Mexico. so they started popularizing the term marijuana, which was the term that the Mexicans mm-hmm. used. So that's where the whole term comes from. The cannabis isn't technically a psychedelic. Cannabis has a number of different compounds. The two main compounds are THC and the cannabidiol, for which there is CBD, CB1, CB2, CNB. Those are the ones that we know about. There are also about a few hundred terpenes, which are plant oils, which have really barely been studied. THC is the more psychoactive component. CBD is a less sort of psychoactive, more body active, more of a depressant. Oh, yeah. If you want to think of sort of conventional nosological classification of things. No drug is a cleanly a stimulant or a depressant or a mm-hmm. psychedelic. They all sit somewhere on the a little bit of a depressant, a little bit of a psychedelic, a little bit of the other axis often think of is an empathogen. That idea of inducing feelings of empathy and oneness with your fellow man. THC per se does, and a lot of people will probably agree that it does have, particularly in high doses, relatively relatively strong psychedelic-esque effects, but in relatively high doses. Now, medical cannabis, which is probably what you're asking about, certainly hasn't been used or explored from the realm of being used in psychotherapy. CBD has been started to be investigated for, and very cautiously, and very few studies for the treatment or management of schizophrenia, which is pretty interesting because cannabis in itself has been implicated in triggering schizophrenia in people who are already have a predisposition to developing schizophrenia. Cannabis can sort of trigger it and set it off. But consider that THC and CBD have always coexisted in the plant. And if THC being the more psychoactive component, without getting too esoteric about it, nature always finds a way to find an equilibrium. It's been around for way longer than we have, and it's worked this shit out yeah. before we have started to mess and tinker with the system. Mm-hmm. The, the concentration of cannabis in street cannabis now is about four times higher than it was about 20 years ago, just THC. And if CBD, CBD has always been the more sort of psychoprotective compound out there, then it makes sense that it's been there to constantly sort of counter the psychotogenic effects of THC. And so that's probably the only realm where it's sort of entered use in psychiatry or psychotherapy. The rest of it is being used in a variety of physiological complaints, chronic pain, lack of appetite, bone pain and cancer, uh, multiple sclerosis. I'm not the person to comment on that. There's certainly a lot of anecdotal evidence. The actual empirical evidence is... I don't think there's a firm stance on it. Ayahuasca. I was literally about to ask that. Yeah, because you ask everyone that. Yeah, I do. So there's DMT and then there's 5-MeO-DMT. DMT is dimethyltryptamine. 5-MeO-DMT is DMT with a 5-methoxy compound added to it. 5-MeO-DMT is naturally found on, you know, the, the mucus excreted from the Bufoil various toad. And actually in Australia, the, the cane toad. And DMT is the active ingredient in ayahuasca. And ayahuasca is a brew that is brewed from the carpi vine and a bunch of other leaves found in, deep in the Amazon. And it is brewed into this tea, which is drunk and produces, again, roughly a 10-hour and one of the most intense psychedelic experiences, which has been used ritualistically and, and therapeutically in, in healing for Generations. Generations. Um, Interestingly, Australia has some of the highest concentrations of DMT in the world in the bark of the wattle, the acacia. Wow. Um, There's incredibly high concentrations. And where would you find that? (laughs) It's everywhere. Yeah, wattles everywhere. We are absolutely awash. Australia (laughs) is awash with psychedelics. (laughs) 
absolutely awash with psychedelics. We've got cane toads hopping around. We've got mushrooms sprouting everywhere. <laughs> like right now, it's it's autumn. It's mushroom season. We've got uh, DMT in, in in our acacia, and we don't have knowledge or yeah. history of psychedelic use within indig- indigenous communities yeah, in Australia. Exactly. There are theories on this and one which is consider when you come to this could be controversial, you come to a land and you spend your first times there shooting all of the people. Is that in any way going to incentivize the people to reveal their deepest, most powerful secrets to you? I would think not. Which country are you talking uh, about? Colonialism. <laughs> I, I wonder which country you're talking about. You know, we about. talk about colonialism so much. It's insane. Well, it is. It's funny how... Uh, <laughs> we talk about it a lot. You, you wonder about where where Dreamtime came from and yeah. where the Rainbow Serpent came from. And and I can completely understand why either they don't want to share it or whether over time a lot of this a lot of this wisdom has been has been lost. Or whether it is still there buried deep within. And you know, it's been a it's been an aspiration of mine to be able to one day support a, a PhD student to look into this. But there's a lot more complexity in that in terms of to an extent indigenous cultures should be allowed to remain indigenous cultures like yeah who are we to say that come come on tell me tell me your secrets like tell me no let them be yeah be. we got our own we got our own ways there's enough yeah you know a lot of time i hear people talk about mushrooms they're like you know you want to go to a quiet place and be with people that you trust why do they say that set and setting are the two things that determine whether you have a good trip or a bad trip mm-hmm. right. Set being your mindset at the time are you in a good headspace in a bad headspace and setting being your environment, your physical setting. Are you warm? Are you cold? Are you, do you feel comfortable? And when you consider our earlier conversation of when you let down your ego defenses, when that ego disillusion has happened and you're in that vulnerable flubber state, you are so perceptible to any external stimuli. All of that content can feed into and warp. And so making an active effort to structure the setting to be the safest is yeah is most definitely the way one one thing i want to say also is that there is a big difference between recreational use yep. and therapeutic use and let us not confuse the two and i think the the scientific and clinical movement is is trying very hard to make that very clear yeah that yeah. The difference between therapeutic use and recreational use is the difference between shooting up heroin in a back street and getting opiates for your pain when you've broken your leg in hospital. Yeah. That is the difference. And to equate the two, which a lot of people do, and just it just further feeds the stigma when then it's when it of should course. be really so obvious that they're completely different things. Yeah. And that everything we are working towards at this point is towards a regulated, safe use of psychedelics such that it can be used for therapeutics and for healing thank you so much for your time it's been one of your best <laughs> podcast experiences you can't deny it that has, it has you know why i can say that because he was going to move around and he hasn't moved from his chair I have that's not. true so we've kept his interest i did notice I that bad. as well like didn't you say you're gonna walk okay now let's all fuck it up let's all fuck it up bye <laughs> fresh <Yeah>. bye <laughs> see ya fresh thank you bye